Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Hola, soy Chad Turnbull. Y yo soy Elke de la Sota. Hemos introducido a los Estados Unidos dos catalán vinos, Bogotel y El Rival. Los vinos son biodinámicos y de muy buen precio. Somos muy orgullosos de estar aquí con Jason. Si estáis interesados en Bogotel o El Raval, haz clic en el link Savorian Wines. Yo soy Jason Colucci, estoy aquí en Robertes, oh, uh, uh, con Chef Seamus Mullen de Tartulia, uh, un restaurante español. I'm sorry, I thought we were completely doing the show in Spanish. Apparently not. Um, once again, thank you, Savorian Wines, um, for your Spanish intro. I wanted to talk about a couple of things. A lot of feedback from the Drew, Drew Neeporn interview last week. Um, I want to thank Drew again for that interview. Uh, he uh, was watching football during the interview, which was good. Everybody said he had a couple of Bloody Marys in him, which kind of mellowed him out a little bit. Uh, I did uh, my first pre-recorded interview this week with the producer, uh, Jesse Kiefer. Uh, we did the Nathan Mirvold interview, which was quite an experience. We're going to play that at the latter half of the show. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do it a three-part series because it was about a 40-minute interview, but today we're going to play the blunder question that I asked him, which basically makes me look retarded, but I'm going to play it because Jesse convinced me to play this question that I had for him. He actually has a T-Rex in his home, and I asked him about it. He explains how he got it. Um, a lot of people in the studio today, I'm looking at a lot of, I've, well, first of all, Chef is here. Chef Seamus Mullen is in studio. Um, if you know his restaurant, Tertulli, I was there this week with Jesse. And first of all, he built most of this restaurant. I mean, sort of design and stuff. I'm, I don't know if he was there every day, sort of <laughs> kind of, you know, hammering things. And knowing the res- current restaurant industry, I bet he was. Um, and I'm just so happy that he took the time out of his busy schedule. He was in the middle of an opening, um, which in New York City is like just out of control uh laura wertz please say hello hi jason how you doing laura wertz 86 list.com you f- grace us with your presence this week thank you oh We're- you're welcome i'm very glad to be here are you not traveling these no, days i just happen to be in brooklyn this weekend and you're gonna do you're gonna sort of you might hear her voice throughout the uh the show laura wertz 86 list.com um she's gonna do her usual thing but she might chime in we're gonna talk a little lot of industry stuff today we have the eater awards i will be attending Tomorrow, thank you to Jesse Kiefer. Uh, my vote for favorite restaurant, Tertulia. I believe they're nominated or chef. Yeah, please, guys, go on eater.com right now and vote. Um, chef, are you nominated or? Uh, or I, don't, I don't know if I'm nominated this year for an eater award, but we definitely, uh, Tertulia is. I think we're up, we're up for something like hottest restaurant in New York, something like that. Please go online right now, eater.com, uh, at Amanda Clute, at eater.com, Twitter, go on, vote. Uh, I was there the other day, amazing place. And also we have our first live musician in studio. We'll be playing the breaks. You will not be subjected to my Lady Gaga and Arcade Fire. Um, we will hear the music from Nick Africano. 
Um, Nick, what's going on? What are you going to play for me today? You know, I'm very specific about my music. Are you going to play Big Texas, my, the song I wrote? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work that out, I, I promise. Uh, I'll play it in a, in, a, in, a, in a blues for you. But yeah, I'll play just a little slide music for you, and uh, then a song at the end. Slide, uh, slide specifically a, a, a blues sort of riff? Yeah. Okay, and yeah. Is, that kind of, is that the music that you usually normally play? or? Yeah, I, I play a, a, a blues-influenced style of music, uh, but also write songs um, that are more rock and roll, more mellow as well. But today, for the instrumental stuff, definitely a little, little blues. And I, I gave an okay on this. You might be tuning uh, for your next song in between an interview I might be doing, so you might hear you in the background. I okayed that. So, um, Also, I have a, a, a question from a listener. Uh, Jennifer Seller asked me, is there a good place in Brooklyn that my father-in-law can order wine for a Thanksgiving feast? We're looking at getting two cases that he would probably order over the phone. Manhattan Works too if they would deliver to our house i'm not thrilled by any of the stores in carroll gardens and cobble hill jennifer um the first thing that i thought of knowing uh, uh wine stores is that if you do buy a case they usually give you a 10 or 20 percent discount um i live in bark slope i know a place called sip um also there's a place called tinto fino since this is a very spanish forward show today um jesse what's uh what's her her name at um tintofino uh karen at tintofino it's on uh first avenue between fifth and sixth and i'm sure she'd be happy uh there's nothing that says turkey like a rioja in terms of uh, as i'm <laughs> uh, as i feel i'm gonna get right into uh my first guest uh chef seamus mullen i you know i didn't want to do a big huge normal bloated bio because i feel like the proof is here i met with you and i, I felt at just at home, just sitting with you in the restaurant, you felt it felt so comfortable. Norm, normally, sitting with a chef, they're just all over the place and stuff, and you just felt felt so. The restaurant felt so comfortable, and the feeling of it felt like it, you guys are in the right stride. Uh, where where are you guys at now since opening? Uh, well, you know, we're, we're in. We're getting to hitting our stride. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad that you felt comfortable in the space. That's sort of what we wanted. And that was a chef's table we were sitting at. Yeah, you were sitting at the back by the grill in the back in the kitchen. Um, and it takes a long time when you're opening a restaurant to get to a place where you feel comfortable to ease off on the reins a little bit. And we're starting to get there where things are falling into place and settling in. Um, and it's funny, I was talking to, to, uh, Anoop, my chef de cuisine last night and he was saying, Oh, it just felt like it was really slow. But in reality, it wasn't slow. It's just that we're starting to get to where, you know, things are, things are becoming a little easier and they're not always challenging, not always difficult. So it's nice. I mean, it's a, it's a really good feeling, and it makes it really feel like the place uh, is kind of a home, a home away from home, and a place that's been there for a really long time, which is what we always wanted with Tertulia. And the the building of it, I talked a little bit about it, and you had mentioned that you were a big part of the design aspect of it. Can you talk a little bit about how much you had to do with it? Sure. I mean, I, I really wanted the restaurant to be very personal. Um, and I had a clear idea as to how I wanted it to turn out. So I, I went to Spain with um, with my management team, and, and with I also took the designer of the restaurant with me, and he and I ended up working together on pretty much every area of the restaurant. So we chose all the materials and all of the colors. Um, everything was kind of taken from this reference research trip to Asturias in northern Spain, and it ended up kind of coming together in this beautiful collage that really feels like a restaurant that's been there forever. And one of the nice things about it is the building has been a restaurant since going all the way back to the days of Prohibition. Um, it was the original 
side of the Redhead, which later became, um, after it moved uptown, later became the 21 Club. So it's one of the original um, speakeasies going all the way back to the time of Prohibition and has been a restaurant since then. Well, there was a short period of time in the 40s when it, it lived a life as a, as a butcher shop, which is totally appropriate for the space. Um, but other than that, it's always been a restaurant. So I wanted the, the latest kind of incarnation of the building and hopefully the last or at least the last for a very long time to feel like it was the original like it had been there for so so long and really well worn and that it would break in and i think that we have accomplished that we really got a space that feels like it's going to break in and feel really nice well so for someone who spends uh you know most of his life in restaurants it, it totally felt that way and i said to jesse uh who you know when we went there i felt so comfortable sitting with you and in, in the restaurant. Um, I had felt like it had been there for a long time. And, and to talk about where it is, uh, just in jet reference of people, sort of uh, landmarks, uh, you have that uh, that the, what we call the the cage is a basketball court there, um, um, where you know a lot of big games happen. It's up Sixth Avenue. Um, <clears throat> and what's the exact address? It's three five nine Avenue of the Americas. Um, and it's kind of at the corner of uh, Washington Place, in between Washington Place and West Forth. We try to call it Washington Place and not West Forth because West Forth has such a negative connotation with all the sex clubs and, and tattoo shops and stuff like that. But it's um, it's in between West Forth and Washington Place on 6th Avenue. And speaking about butchery, you said that the space had it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about ham. I work in the Italian sort of mm-hmm. format, and you know, prosciutto di Parma is sort of uh, prosciutto di Sant'Agnelli and all that stuff. Uh, what, what specific? I mean, Iberico ham. I mean, what what's going on with that now? It's it, obviously it's the best stuff out there. Mm-hmm. But is there is there differing opinions on where the best stuff is coming from? Or? Yeah, well, Iberico is is um, a term that's used to refer to the breed of pig. Okay which is a, a relatively small pig from southern Spain that's been in Spain since the time of the Phoenicians. Um, and the ham that we've come to know as jamón ibérico de bellota, which means ibérico ham fed on acorns, um, has been produced in Spain for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, going dating way back before the time of refrigeration <laughs> when we had to use salt to preserve food. Um, and the ibérico ham happens to the Iberico pig happens to, to respond really well to salting. Um, and there are only a few producers in Spain that really do it properly, where the pigs are raised in open areas. It's called the Deesa, which is a which is an acorn forest where the pigs, basically in the summer, they don't eat anything. And then as the, uh, as the fall comes on and the acorns come into season and they drop from the trees, the pigs gorge on them and then they live off of the acorns for the, that they've eaten for the rest of the year. So they have this really unique metabolism where they can um, go long periods of months without, without eating and then they can gorge and live off of their, their fat reserves. And what that ends up producing is a, um, a meat that's very well marbled and has a tremendous amount of fat. Um, and if it's handled well and aged properly, you end up with this exquisite ham, which is called Jamón Ibérico de Bellota. Um, it ha- obviously has a lot of value and marketing value, the term particularly in Spain, and now with a greater understanding of Spanish products outside of Spain, um, it's it's a really important product and, and term to use. But unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot of regulations about what can be called and what can't be called jamón ibérico. And, and it ends up that a lot of producers call their ham jamón ibérico de bellota, even if they're only 50% um, ibérico pr- pigs, a heritage breed pig. Um, and, and even if they aren't free-range, and even if they aren't fed on acorns. So you end up with this this huge delta between what two products called the same thing that are labeled the same way 
and they can be completely different. One is exquisite, and the other one is basically factory or raised meat. So up until now, there haven't been um, too many producers that have had the the resources to produce uh, a, a, a facility in Spain that would be up to USDA standards. And now there is there's one one of the best producers in Spain. And um, they've just, as of two weeks ago, um, gotten USDA approval to export to the U.S. So we started getting their ham two weeks ago, and it's incredible. I'm speaking now with Chef Seamus Mullen, uh, Chef of Tortuya. We're going to take a break now, and we're going to come back. I want to talk a little bit about his history coming up in New York City and um, you know Spanish food and where it's come and where it's going. Jason Colucci, The Morning After. Talking to Seamus Mullen, Seamus, uh, Chef, um, because I don't know if you notice when I do a lot of interviews, there's some people that I that work and I call them chef and stuff. I work with a lot of big chefs, and uh, I really say that in the chef with the highest respect because after spending some time with you briefly, um, I I feel that you are sort of authority on on Spanish food now. Um, can you talk a little bit about coming to New York and being in Spain and your your career and how it's led to this point? Yeah, I mean, I've spent, I, I have a, a long relationship with Spain. I've been going there for 20 years. Um, and I, I first went there for my senior year in high school and fell, fell in love with the language and the culture and the food. And since then, I've gone back uh, over the years for different periods of time. Um, and I cooked there for a while and, and, and lived there. And, and when I moved back to New York City, um, I felt like there was a real, there was a real dearth of, of uh, Spanish food in New York. Um, what year was that? That was in 2005. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so in, in 2006, I, I opened with my with my former partner, I opened a restaurant called Bocadilla, which... Which we all know. Which ended up being, a, you know, actually the sort of the common ground that brought a lot of the people in this room together. Um, Nick, I got to know, and, and Jesse and Aaron, obviously, at Bocadilla. Um, and, uh, and a lot of wonderful things came out of it. And I think we really helped bring Spanish food to New York. Um we certainly raised the bar of Spanish food in New York. Um, and, and it's great. It's a very open playing field in a lot of ways. There's a lot of, obviously, a ton of Italian and French restaurants in New York. And there are very few Spanish restaurants. And, and there's, there's, um, there's a few that are, that are really extraordinary. And, and uh, the folks at, at, um, at Chiquito, Alex, and Ed are doing an incredible job. They do wonderful food, really wonderful people. Um, but there really aren't that many people that are cooking Spanish food in New York, so it's been a, it's been a great challenge, and it's also been a great you know great thing to work on here. Do you think it's just because of um, I mean, in terms of why why it's not that way, just because of 
uh, you know, there was a lot of you know Italian people, French people here cooking, and that was sort of the thing. Or do you think that um, the Sp- to me growing up, Spanish food was just a big thing of paella, and you know there was a mm-hmm. lot of different ingredients yeah. in it, and it came out in a La Crusade pot, and everybody shared it. I mean, but now it's sort of taken on a whole nother. But, and there's nothing. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I, I think I think a lot of it goes back to. Um, Goes back to the fact that yeah, you did have a you have a huge Italian American population here, um, and while there isn't as large, there isn't really a huge French French American population here. France has always been the default place that we go to when we think of, of high cuisine. Um, just having the Italian community, whether it's in New York or, or or even in Pittsburgh or in Cleveland or in you know wherever you are, Philadelphia, they're they're large, predominant Italian neighborhoods, um, and the and the Italians have always been very good about preserving their culinary history and bringing it with them. Um, the Spaniards tend to be much more introverted. It's an introverted culture that, that really, they have a lot of wonderful things, but because they lived under a, such an oppressive regime for so many years, um, there was kind of like this, this, this uh, suppressed creativity, which obviously after Franco died in 1975, there's just this inc- incredible explosion. We're still seeing it. I mean, people like Ferran Adrià are, are, are they're part of the, he, he is a huge part of this creative explosion in Spain. Um, and, and I think because of that, there was just, there, this, Spain just didn't have the same kind of distribution network that other cuisines have had in the U.S., um, and so there was a very limited uh, understanding of what Spanish cuisine is. But with Ferran, people kind of, they suddenly started looking at Spain as a place to go for for food. And they got there with the expectation of seeing fireworks and seeing just this tremendous intergalactic food that Ferran does. And they ended up finding that not only is there that, but there's this an incredible history of and tradition of, 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 um, of traditional food, of really wonderful product-based cooking. And the restaurant you're referencing is El Bulli? Yeah, of course. Oh, okay, and um, would, is Jose Andreas have any? Is is he a part of the sort of? Would you consider him somebody who is? I think part- he's been an incredible proponent of Spanish food in the United States, and he's um, he's been in a lot of ways. He's really helped Ferran um, extend his sort of his reach within. He's almost like an ambassador. Yeah, or he's very much like an ambassador of, of Ferran. But then of course Jose Andres has also just he's grown into being, you know, one of the one of the foremost authorities on Spanish cuisine anywhere and certainly in the United States. Now let's get back into New York City, um, and currently do you <clears throat> in family and restaurants, uh, everyone that works at this restaurant or you sous chefs I'm assuming these are guys that came up with you and work with you. Mm-hmm. Um and just meeting you the other day, I could just tell by the, the how calm you were at the table that you knew that the kitchen was under control. The, the guys that are in there those, are these people that have been working with you for a long time. Yeah, a lot of them have been with me for a long time, and and I have I'm very lucky to have wonderful people that work in in the kitchen with me and in the front of the house as well. We have a really um, we have a very cohesive and uh, supportive staff, and it's, it's it very much feels like a family. Um, and I, I wouldn't be able to do this if I didn't. I mean, I have. I have rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease, and, and I simply can't work 16 hours a day, six, seven days a week any longer. Um, so if I didn't have people that, one, supported me and understood my limitations, uh, but at the same time shared my vision for the restaurant and for hospitality, I wouldn't be able to do it. So I'm, you know, I'm very lucky to have the group of people that I have that I work with. Well, Chef, I just want to say I'm very lucky to have you in the studio. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Sure. Um, I hope you hang out for the rest of the show. You're more than welcome. Uh, Nick, can you take us out?
this show's come a long way. We're in uh, episode nine. We're going to celebrate our 10th anniversary, um, 10 weeks of the morning after. We're going to go into 86lows.com. Laura Wirtz gracing us with her presence in studio. Whoa, Laura Wirtz, 86lows.com. Laura Wirtz, hot job of the week. Go ahead. All right, here I am in studio. Um, well, it's, it's becoming the holiday season. So what that means is a lot of holiday parties, a lot of special events. And so this week's Hot Job of the Week is coming from the supporting cast. Uh, they're a staffing agency for catering and uh, hotel events. Um, and right now they're looking for banquet servers and bartenders. Um, they say they're looking for somebody that has at least two years of experience. And they're looking for people that, have, uh, that are TIPS certified. And what that means is that they've taken a class that... Um, prepares them for how to deal with uh, people who to prevent drunk driving, intoxication, and underage drinking. So they're really looking for some um, serious, responsible people. Lower, and lower yeah, words, that's it. Lower words, I'm TIP certified. Oh, you are? Yes, when I opened the Excel Club at uh, City Field, I had to take that class for uh, being a 1099 for Aramark. Um, okay, yeah, it seems like it's, it's for you know, larger, larger places. Like yes. hotels and, and large catering firms. It's a liability thing and uh, it's something you can do in two hours. Um, we could. Uh, I'm, I'm getting. What's going on in that, that booth? It looks very active today. We have uh, we have somebody online. Um, I think we have, Steve, we have Steve online. Oh, we do. Yeah. Oh wow, that's awesome. Because I'm drinking his cider right now, and I was. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit more about tips and Aramark because that's such an exciting thing to talk about. Um, <laughs> Laura. Yes. What's up? What's your experiences right now in in studio? What's going on? Do you notice anything different? Is it different than being on the phone or what? Well, it definitely is. Like, you know, I get a feel for the whole vibe of the show. I always listen whenever I'm not in studio, but, you know, it's nice to get to, You're get lying. to you meet some of these people. Do you listen to the show or you listen to your own parts? I Well, you know, I, I've confessed to not having listened to all of the shows, but I, I, I like to know what's going on. Okay. Just sometimes I'm just not, you know. Sometimes I'm just not in a good spot. There, I can't can't get in there and listen to the whole show. <laughs> I enjoy honesty. Uh, we're gonna go. <laughs> we have Steve Woods on the on line, provider cider maker for Farnham Hill. Um, we're drinking his cider right now. Steve. Hey. What's up, buddy? Um. Gosh, I don't know, man. <laughs> are you? Uh, uh, where Where are you right now? Um. I'm at my orchard. Are you, um, are you literally, are you inside or are you actually walking around? Uh, is the loading dock, does the loading dock work for you? I'm on the loading dock looking, <laughs> I'm not walking, I'm not, I'm not out, I'm not out with my dog and my stick. No, this, you mean. no, this, I'm, no. <laughs> no I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm at the place. No, this is, this yeah. is radio, we have to paint a picture for the audience, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no, there you have it, well, no, no I'm, I'm, I'm outside a barn looking, um, down in a bunch of orchards. Right now, we're drinking Dooryard cider. Um, can you talk a little huh? bit? We're drinking Dooryard cider. This is one of your. Uh, huh? Can you talk a little yeah. bit? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a that, that's a relatively new notion for us, uh, or rather, an old notion. But we finally did it. Um, uh, it it's it, I, I don't know what Dooryard you're drinking, and you can spin the bottle around and tell me by looking at the number on the back. But the um, one one two five. The idea. One one two five. Um, uh, yeah, very good. Uh, so um, purchase that, at Whole Foods. You know, the, uh, let me tell you about. Uh, I'll tell you about Dooryard. The idea is that we have, without really intending to do so, we've sort of created some brands. Meaning, we we have semi dry and extra dry and farmhouse and all of our the stuff that we've been making for years. Um, each of them has a 
you know, a flavor and aroma profile or something, meaning to say there are expectations based around those things. We're constantly trying to improve them, and they're not consistent, perfectly consistent or anything. But a huge departure from one of them would be a little weird under the same label. And meanwhile, you know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of fruit of, of, of different sorts here. We make a lot of, we ferment a lot of different things, uh, and uh, we 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 always have a bunch of cider. That uh, it's not that we don't quite know what to do with. We didn't, but used to. But we, you know, we sort of sell it locally. We don't know. We, it doesn't really fit into our, you know, one or another of our regular labels. And we wouldn't have dared do this years ago. But but now, or even maybe four years ago. But we decided to just have a sort of, um, we got a label approved from the feds that is a movable feast. It allows us to put small batches of one thing or another together and move them out to the broad market. So sometimes, I mean, sometimes a small batch is a thousand gallons and sometimes it's a 50 gallons. Um, but the point is to tell you, say, I mean, if you told me you really liked it, you really didn't like semi dry, I'd kind of, I'd say, yeah, well, you know, whatever. But <laughs> you tell me you really like or don't like dooryard, it has no meaning because the next dooryard might be very, very different from the yeah. one you're drinking now. So it's just a way of getting, you know, a bunch of a bunch of uh, different ciders out there. Um, uh, well, we like it. That's, that's the idea. As everyone's drinking in the studio, everyone's nodding their head that we definitely like this this vintage, the one 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 two five vintage that could be purchased at cool. the Whole Foods on the corner of Houston and Bowery, uh, which we purchased. Um, what, can you define the uh, orchardist? Can you define that term? Because does that play into sort of fermenting apples, or is that just basically uh, managing an orchard? <clears throat> oh man, no, it's the whole deal. Okay. Now I've been growing apples. I mean, this orchard's been here for quite a long time. It's it's changed its its shape a lot, but I, I've been I've been working at the orchard since 1965, and you know this is I mean, this view extends outward to wine with me as well. I, I, I you know I mean I think the best ciders and the best wines for that matter are made in the orchard or made in the in the vineyard, and that the cider maker or the or the vineyards uh, or you know, whatever winemaker's job is not to screw up the good stuff he's got if he's got good stuff. We, you know, we have, we have, our orchards are absolutely central to our, we, we, they, we, our, our, our ciders are what they are, whether you like them or not, <laughs> they are what they are because of the orchards. Um, and because, not just because, I mean, because of the actual specific place, you know, the, the, the dirt, the, the, uh, the aspect of the land. The terroir, the, if you will. The climate. The whole deal. Terroir is terroir is real. I mean, there are a lot of other things out there, but ter- <laughs> terroir is real, and it's real with with orchards as well. And the trick in the orchard is to is to not just to grow an apple, but to discover what varieties of the thousands of varieties out there, what small handful of varieties that your actual piece of ground wants to grow, or what things want to grow there. The things that can be grown to a really high standard. I mean, the, the cider apples that go into our ciders, you know, they're a result of, well, I mean, they, we, we, heck, we didn't used to grow cider apples, but, but uh, when, we, we, when we had or decided to change what we did up here in the way of what we grew, which is, you know, a thing that's too elaborate to elaborate, having to do with, you know, market forces, whatever, 20 or 25 years ago, we, we we selected those cider varieties from hundreds, the few cider varieties we grew from hundreds of stuff, that, uh, hundreds of varieties that we've done grafting trials on for, 
you know, decades. So it, it wasn't just randomly saying, well, let's grow some cider apples now. It's like sort of saying, well, let's grow some Cabernet Sauvignon here in Florida. You know, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really work. You've got to you, know your ground and what it will grow. When you're, talking so, about, when you're talking about Terroir, we're talking about Lebanon, New Hampshire. Um, that's the area where, yep. where everything takes place. Um, and since we're doing, uh, we have a sort of a Spanish theme here, we'll say, what is the, uh, the Tempranillo of, of, of the, the cider now? What, is your, what are some of the, the varietals that come up in terms of apples? Laura Words would love to think it's Crispin because she loves cooking with that apple. But um, what is what are some of the uh, the apples that we are talking about? Well, Crispin just ain't going to work for, work for us. Crispin's <laughs> a wonderful variety, but not 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 a wonderful variety. But it's good for started. apple tart. In my it's a good baking view, apple. I mean, yeah, Crispin Crispin is matsu, and it's a wonderful apple. But it's it, uh, you know I, I would I mean I have fermented it. I wouldn't do it again. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and there is no tempranillo. Um, the, the, um, uh, it, 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 what there are a number of varieties, bittersweet varieties, um, which are characterized by very high tannins and usually very low acidity, which are essential components to our many ciders around the world. With names like uh, what uh, Dabinet and Medador, Somerset Red Streak, Arlington Mill. Um, but the, I, I guess again, I, I, I was alluding to, referring to one for, uh, earlier. I. I I have this sort of, every every variety actually lacks something, and what I think is that it, this may be a little bit more true of, of of apples than it is of grapes. But I think it's actually true of grapes as well. That the the best varieties actually don't really particularly, with the possible except the Pinot Noir and the you know in Burgundy or whatever, don't really want to go by themselves. They they are they they lack some they lack that they have enormous. The characteristics they bring to the fermentation and blending, whatever. But they, but bittersweets are not have a lack acidity, but and they have there. There are a lot of. I mean, again, it's hard to talk in a generic way about these things. But you know, the other ones are acidic apples that we use, or things like Wixen and Asopus Spitzenberg and Ashmeets Kernel, um, are sort of more f- sort of fruit bomb apples, or things like Golden Russet. Uh, but most of the most of the ciders, the finished ciders that we put out. You know, there, there, there might be a dozen varieties in one of them. Well, that, um, it's not random, but it's not. You know, it's they, 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 they like they like to be with their friends in a tank or a barrel. Well, Steve, I know how busy you are. Um, I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, if anyone um, wants to go on the website, uh, Farnham Hill. Um, we're drinking the cider right now. Of course, this is uh, from batch to batch. We're drinking one one two five, which I definitely vouch for. Farnham Hill Dooryard Cider. Um, Steve, thanks again. We'll check in with you a uh, few few weeks, few months. Yeah, very good. I, I, you, you'll, you know where to find me. Thanks very much for calling. Anytime, anytime. We're going to take a break now. We're going to come back. I'm going to play the Nathan Mirvold uh, Modernist Cuisine interview.
we're back. Wow, I never knew so much. The Apple had so much, so many qualities. Um, I want to go into um, the interview I did uh, this week. It was a pre-interview. I talked a little bit about um, in the beginning of the show, but it was, this is one of the first pre-recorded interviews I had done. Now, let me preface this in- interview by saying this was via Gmail, via a phone call via Gmail and recorded through rock band um garage band garage band sorry um <laughs> and um i was running around and i'm probably queued it up wrong here but i think i have it queued up properly this is uh, nathan Mirold um uh schooling me and basically uh telling me that dinosaurs and humans didn't exist at the same time um and here we go let me queue it up this is a weird question, but I've heard this. Do you have a, a T-Rex in your living room or something? A, a Tyrannosaurus? I do. You do? A full size? I do. I can see it from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, that, that is amazing. <laughs> now, is that, is that your discovery? Was that your um, one of your discoveries? <laughs> no, the funny thing is uh, I, I bought a cast of a T-Rex uh, for my living room because I've always loved dinosaurs. Um, every little kid loves dinosaurs. I just never grew out of it. Uh, then I started doing a lot of scientific research on dinosaurs, so I decided I wanted one at home, so I bought a cast of a specimen. Well, I also, in parallel with that, I've been uh, working on a dinosaur expedition. Uh, we went out every year for seven years um, uh, to an area in Montana, and I was actually there when we discovered a T-Rex. So I found one, but I already had one. <laughs> That's a rule. You, know, you can't. This is this is like a hunter having somebody else's deer head up in his, his room. But you know, I don't really have room for two yeah. T Rexes in my living room. So well, Nathan, you I know, just uh, stick with the one I've got. You know the unwritten rule. You're there's you're not supposed to own one, one, more than one T Rex. We all know that. We we grew up with that rule. Parents taught it to us. But uh, that's funny, man. I've heard, you know, I heard, I heard that, and I just, I so wanted to ask you because like, it, it was kind of going around in different interviews. That that's amazing. Did uh, and this is sort of uh, do, do they find were, were sort of cavemen and stuff? Were they dining on on dinosaur meat? I know that's a weird question, but is that like is well, <laughs> ancient humans yeah. and uh, dinosaurs were completely separated in time. Back in the age of the dinosaurs. Our relative mammals were tiny. They were mostly little rat-like creatures. <laughs> um, the biggest mammal that uh, that lived during the time of the dinosaurs was about the size of a big cat. Yeah. Um, so w- there were no cavemen. Um, there weren't even any monkeys. Uh, there were a bunch of very small primitive mammals. Now, that was about... <laughs> oh, <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm a, ch- a child of cinema and a and a product of a, a social anxiety. I was in the middle of a thir- minute thirty when I asked that question, and um, you know, I, listen, I was trying to get into just basically what what this interview goes, which was, you know, what his thoughts of dinosaur meat might have tasted like through his studies. Um, but you know, luckily, I had Jesse right next to me laughing at me while I was doing this, so the stress even went higher. I'll play the end of it. Here we go. So then the dinosaurs all died 65 million years ago. Uh, Today we think that was probably because of the impact of an asteroid that hit the Earth, uh, changed the entire environment, drove dinosaurs extinct. Uh, Well, that's when mammals finally got their day in the sun. Uh, Mammals had been around the whole time there were dinosaurs, but dinosaurs dominated everything, so the mammals just couldn't catch a break. 
uh, well, this extinction was the break they needed. And uh, the, uh, mammals grew. So humans, ancient humans, yeah. depending on which ancient human you're talk, thinking of, only go back a couple million years. And when people think of uh, cavemen, it's even uh, less than that. You know, hundreds of thousands of years would be most of the species that people think of as cavemen. So they could not have possibly <laughs> dined on dinosaurs. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm sorry, my reference point was the movie Caveman starring uh, Ringo Starr, which came out in like 85. I don't know if you're it's kind of a funny movie. Yes, well, as I can see you really are an academic. <laughs> <laughs> but Dr. Uh, the... Uh, now, you know, I've wondered quite a bit as to what dinosaurs taste like. Yeah, that's where I was going. I mean, I guess that's what I was getting at, and everyone is laughing at me right now. And, and, I, and um, I, I guess, yeah, what what sort of the uh, flavor profile? It's a, it's a not, you know, it's a... So lean. it's the, the, you know, the closest living relatives to dinosaurs are birds. And the birds that have a lifestyle most similar to dinosaurs are probably the ratites. That's uh, ostrich, emu. Uh, so uh, ostrich is probably as close as you're going to get to eating dinosaur. Uh, and it's great. Uh, ostrich is, is a great meat. You know, it's a lean red meat. Um, looks much more like a lean beef, um, like a flank steak, uh, than it does like what you think of as a bird. Mm. And so that's pr probably a uh, if you want to ap approach what a dinosaur was like, uh, that's probably the best uh, best current example. Well, that is the lead-in for the three-part series with Nathan Mirvold, author of Modernist Cuisine, um, and that was at the tail end of stuff when I was just kind of like throwing questions out there. Um, and we'll do it at three parts. I asked him a lot about his history uh, with food. Uh, you know, he was the chief technologist at Microsoft for a bunch of years and got, was really into food. He cooked his uh, his mom Thanksgiving, the family Thanksgiving dinner at the age of nine. Um, and basically, uh, he's you know essentially a you know a genius. I mean, it was funny being, talking to him on the phone, and then having that that sort of speech told to me, which was kind of funny. It was almost associated. I hate sports analogies because I'm not a big sports fan. When you sort of uh, you. <clears throat> You're running the opposite way, and you're running into the the your end zone and scoring a, a touchdown, and uh, or something where you know everyone's yelling at you and saying no, 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 don't say that, don't say that. But it was it was funny, and I wanted to play. Jesse sort of convinced me. Jesse, can you uh, talk a little bit, two seconds about being there? It was it was fantastic, and in the future, I'd like to refer to this as the uh, as Jason's Land of the Lost moment. Land of the Lost, yes, we love that show. Not the remake <laughs> with Will Ferrell. Uh, we want to forget about that. But we want to talk about Choco, which was Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray. He played Choco in that great series that we all love. You can actually catch it on YouTube. But I have somebody on the line right now. This is a gentleman from one of Jesse's favorite restaurants, and uh, I wanted to talk about this because I'd like to get out of the realm of New York City a little, a little bubble here. We're going to go all the way to Scottsdale, Arizona, to a Giuseppe Restaurant. Pasquale, are you there? Yes, sir. I am here. Ciao. Uh, afternoon. How are you? Ciao, Pasquale. How is it going? What's, uh, what's going on in Arizona right now? Are you in the restaurant or what? No, actually, I'm not in where where are you? Are you in some basement or something? Uh, take take a walk somewhere outside of the space you're at right now because your connection's coming in really really tough right really? now. Really? Well, yeah. I was in the car here. Yeah. I'm going to want to make uh, any noise. Can you hear me? 
Oh, hey, well, step out of the car and, uh, you know, step outside. It's, it's, it's all good. <laughs> well, hey, it's beautiful and sunny over here, so that's okay. I can do that. I can perfect. Stay the right there. Stay, stop right there. Thank you very much. I, I hate to be so so abrupt, but we, these connections can kind of change the entire interview. Um, uh, now, uh, Jesse is, loves this restaurant. She is our childhood restaurant. It's, it's, a, it's a place, a familiar place for everyone um, that kind of grew up there. And I love these places. I'm an Italian-American, and, uh, you know, I have a special place in my heart. That spot is called Lee's Tavern. But can you talk a little about the restaurant and the menu? Sure. Uh, I have a little restaurant. I sit about 45 people. And uh, it's, uh, what would say, uh, like a hole in a wall. Um, southern kind of uh, dishes, Neapolitan. Uh, lots of tomato sauce, pasta, eggplant. And uh, we try to make uh, everybody happy. Uh, Mm, so uh, I know Jesse, see the whole family, or oh, Jesus. We know each other over twenty some years. Well, when you say uh, you know, I want to get into this because you know you're talking about dishes. We're talking about you know the, the dishes that you know the Mario Batali's of the world wanted us to forget about, which is just a classic sort of Americanized <laughs> right. chicken parmesan. I mean, it is essentially you know breaded chicken, you know put it in a fry later or fried you know in a shallow pan or something. That, that's something that you offer right. at your restaurant, which is a great dish. Is that uh, what are some of the more popular dishes that you, you sell? Well, uh, we do have, like I was saying before, we do have chicken, we have veal, we have eggplant, uh, we have, um, it's very, we sell just about everything that we have. We try to make sometimes, you know, specials of the day, uh, and basically it's always in a, uh, we have uh, a great thing. We have the biggest, best little written meatballs in town. Um, so we sell quite a few of those. Um, I wouldn't, I, I mean, you know, everything I have on the menu, I sell. So, no, yeah. Hey. It, what, what, all right, so let, let me ask you this question, because this is something, yeah. I, as as, a, as an American, as an Italian, I want to set the standard straight. I had somebody here last week. Is it, what, do you, do you have, you have galamad calamari on the menu? We have, um, uh, squid. Friday we'll do a, a chopino, which is a pasta with seafood, and we have uh, the calamari, we have uh, okay. uh, clams. Uh, so yes. yes. So in, Ar- in Arizona, they're calling it calamari. They're not calling it calamari. You know that's that statement that that basically second generations of um, Americans call uh, calamari to make themselves feel uh, feel like they they still speak the language. <laughs> well, some of some people they say you you know they use that kind of stuff to go fishing, but I eat because I love it. Yeah, well, they use it as chum, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so thank you for your time. I, uh, you know, these places are all over the country, um, and you've been in business for a long time. And, and there's a lot of New Yorkers that live in Arizona, specifically. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes. Do do, yes. do you sort of know the what is that sort of migration? What, that sort of to Arizona. What's that all about? Well, you know, uh, when you come from the East, uh, Boston area, uh, New York, uh, New Jersey, they find the, my place, which is a little, like I would say before, a little hole in the wall. They feel like they're back home. You know, we keep that tradition, still white, uh, red, uh, checkers, tablecloths. Uh, I, as you notice, I don't speak that good in- English, even though I've been in the almost 40 years in the country, so they feel, you know, the from back east, they, I would say back east, they feel at home, yeah, with me. Well, don't worry, uh, Nathan Mirvold feels the same way about me. Sorry, that wasn't good. <laughs> well, with a, name like, with a name like yours, you know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will, well I, will, I will, on that note, I will take that, that advice into consideration. Thank you for your time. Uh, we'll talk soon. Uh, well, I, I thank you very much um, to give the, the, the chance to talk to you. There's any any other question you want to talk about, let me know. I know you have a very little time, so but I thank you for uh, 
give me this opportunity uh, uh, to talk to the people back home. Ciao, grazie, grazie. Grazie, signore. You have a wonderful uh, Domenica. Thank you, thank you. Uh, well, before, before our um, in-house musician here uh, goes and plays and, and, and leads the show out, I wanted you to sort of talk, talk about, you know, plug some gigs that you have coming up, and um, that would be great. Nick? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is good timing. I have a, my first gig at the Mercury Lounge next Saturday, the 19th at 7 p.m., um, and that's it's it's cool for me. It was sort of a goal this year to get on that stage and perform there, um, doing my own show. And I've I've played there and with other bands. And this time, I you know my band will be the the, the opening band, and then good friends of mine follow. Awesome. Thank you, Nick Africano, for for being here today. I appreciate the time. I want to thank all my guests. Uh, this is the morning after episode nine. Um, we're going to lead ourselves out here today. We'll see you next week. Uh, we'll be covering the Eater Awards this week. Nathan Miravold is in the city. I'm going to try and catch up with him once again the morning after. Till I get somewhere Standing still won't get me anywhere These nights are deserts These days are circles Sometimes we all need a little help Sometimes we all start to drag our heels Sometimes we don't remember how to feel God know that when I fall At least I got this blood on my skin At least I got this moment I'm in These nights are deserts These days are circles Sometimes we all need a little help Sometimes we all start to drag our heels Sometimes we don't remember how to feel
Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.